This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, it is a small book, and so I'm going to encourage you to use your table of contents to find it. We are going to be starting a new series in this book that we'll be in for the next several weeks. And today we are starting in Esther chapter 1. And I want to encourage you that if you are new to the church, uh, bring out your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty provided for you in the back there. We think it's very important for people to be able to have God's Word in their hands. Um, so we actually intentionally don't uh, project it on the screen anymore because we want people to have God's Word in front of them because you can't take the screen with you when you go home. And so we want to make sure that you have God's Word that you can continually look at so you know we're not just making up these things. God really is this good, and He says it right here in His, in His Word. As you turn to Esther chapter 1, I want to begin... Uh, by telling you a story about a police cadet who was taking his final exam to become a police officer. And on this exam, he was given a question that was designed to test his situational awareness and ability to prioritize things when under pressure. The question goes like this. There is a 911 emergency call about a gas explosion. You are dispatched to investigate this call, and on investigation you find that a large hole has been blown in the middle of a major road, and there's an overturned van nearby. Inside the van there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured, and you recognize the woman as the wife of your chief of police. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, and you realize that he is a man who is wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into the adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Describe in a few words what actions you would take. The cadet thinks for a moment, and he picks up a pen and writes, I would take off my uniform and go mingle with the crowd. So, some situations are just so overwhelming that we can want to quit. I'm tapping out. I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to just try to make it through life. I just want to blend into the crowd like, like I'm done. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many people here over the past two years you felt like I'm just done. I know if we were showing hands, my hand would definitely go up. I'm grateful that we are moving past the pandemic. Numbers continue to decline. There's a returning sense of normalcy. Praise God for those things. But now we do have this Russian war in Ukraine. And you have a dictator who's threatened to use nuclear weapons. That should be unsettling to us. Here at home, we have rising inflation, economic uncertainty, not to mention all the cultural challenges that we just got done talking about in our Untwisting the Truth series. And I'm sure in your own life, there are pains that are unique and personal to you. Can't life sometimes just seem to hit us over and over again? 
It can feel sometimes like we're in a quarter just taking body blow after body blow after body blow waiting for the knockout punch to come. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you have gotten that knockout punch. You're down to your knees and you're not sure of how you're going to be able to get up and keep going. And in all this for the Christian, there can also be this question that comes, where is God? What is He doing? Why is He allowing this? Why isn't He intervening? How often the presence of our pain can be exacerbated by the seeming absence of our God. If you've ever felt overwhelmed, unsteady, discouraged, fearful, anxious, if you've ever found yourself asking the question, where is God? Friends, the book of Esther is going to be a gift to you. It has been for me. This, this book was written to give the origin story of the events that led to the creation of the Jewish festival known as Purim. Purim is similar to Passover in that they both celebrate stories of deliverance. You're probably more familiar with Passover. Passover is the story of deliverance of the Jewish people from their slavery to Egypt. Purim is the deliverance of the Jewish people from potential annihilation by the Persians. They're both about deliverance, but the kind of deliverance that these two feasts celebrate are different from one another. Passover is deliverance through God-working, powerful miracles. God doing signs and wonders. God working in such ways that it's obvious, oh, this is God and this is His work. But Purim is deliverance through God working in ways that are not seen. In Esther, it is 10 chapters long with 127 verses and is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned once. He's not named. He's not seen. But don't for one minute think that means He is not present. He is present. He is working to bring about deliverance, not through observable miracles, but through natural events that take place in the course of of history. Passover is kind of about the, the undeniable deliverance of God, but Purim is about the unseen deliverance of God. But what we're going to see here in Esther is that even when God is not seen, that does not mean that He is not at work. He is in control of all things at all times. He is the God of providence. And this year our theme has been, and is going to continue to be, learning how to live with humble confidence in the God of Providence. And there's no better book that I think will help us do this than getting into this book of Esther. So I've entitled this morning's sermon, Where is God? Where is God? And may the Lord meet us through the reading and preaching of His Word from Esther chapter 1. This is a lengthy portion of Scripture, longer than they, we re, uh, usually read. Please pray for your pastor that I make it through. And let us hear God's Word together. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat in, on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces who were before him while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days, 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's house. There were white curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Vista, Harbonath, Victa, Agatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshanath, Shethar, Amatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her a royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Praise God for his holy word. Will you bow your head with me now in a word of prayer over it? God, I pray that as we study this passage, the historical account that you have preserved for us, Lord, would you, we see your purposes for us in it. 
Lord, I pray that you would be with me, weak person that I am. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to proclaim a message to these people that you love in a way that displays the glory of Christ and draws all our hearts to worship you. God, we need you in this moment to illuminate these words that you inspired to take place and you preserve for us. So come, have your way with us. We're here to hear from you. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. This book, which is about the deliverance of the Jews, you will notice does not start by mentioning any Jews. In this book that's about God's deliverance of the Jews, you'll notice does not start by mentioning God. Right from the outset, we see this theme of unseenness being established. Just to catch you up, God's people had been conquered by this pagan empire. What had happened to them? Where are they to be seen? Do they still even exist? Are they still even a people? God had allowed His people to be conquered by this pagan empire. What had happened to God? Where is He to be seen? Does He even exist? This opening chapter of Esther is meant to provoke us with these questions and also begin to hint at some answers. You see, through the events that unfold here, even though God's people are not named and even though God is not seen, He is already at work to create a way for their deliverance. See, God is not limited to our ability to see Him. He is not confined to what we can understand, discern, or observe about Him. He is too much God for that. Even when we don't see God, He's working. And so to give away the punchline of this chapter, I'm going to say it to you now, and hopefully we can sing it together at the end. God's infinite power is not limited by our finite perspective. What we're going to see as we make our way through this text is we're going to see that God's infinite power is not limited to our finite perspective. We're going to break down the study of this chapter into two sections. We're going to look at the powerful nation, and then we're going to see the unstoppable God. Let's begin with looking at a powerful nation. Verses 1 through 9 give us a carefully curated picture of the most powerful nation in the world at the time and one of the most powerful nations to ever exist. You'll notice that the author is intentional to give us the dimensions of this vast empire. It's 127 provinces from ancient India to ancient Ethiopia. We actually have a picture of a map of what this looks like. So we get this picture up. You'll see that it is most of the known world at that time was made up of the Persian Empire. And almost over all this known world, this was the reign of King Ahasuerus, or you might more commonly know him as King Xerxes. And I'm going to use that because that's a lot easier for me to say. If you've seen the movie 300, this is the same guy. It's King Xerxes, although he's not as tall as he's depicted in that movie. This is the third year of his reign. So this is before he goes to invade Greece. And he is giving a massive feast. And the purpose of this feast is to show off the power of his kingdom. The Greek historian Herodotus said the purpose for this feast was for Xerxes to show off his power so that his leaders would be confident to join him in going to battle. 
What we're seeing here is one big, long pep rally where Xerxes is getting everyone pumped up about how we're going to go out, look how great we are, and now we're going to go out and we're going to start conquering other nations. We're going to seize even more power. And so for this huge pep rally, Xerxes is pulling out all the stops. There are no red plastic solo cups at this party. He's brought the golden chalices out. There's no dirt floors that they're walking on. No, the floors are made of pearls and precious stones. This is a walkway of diamonds. His couches are not covered in gold and silver. They are made from gold and silver. Now, that doesn't sound that comfortable to me. But as a display of wealth, it's pretty impressive. And this is just his winter palace. Notice, several times it mentions that he's in Susa. Susa was only one of four palaces that he had decked out in this way in various parts of his empire. Xerxes is flexing in a way here that would make even Jeff Bezos blush. He is throwing a party to show it all off. And the only rule at this party is he tells people in verse 8, you are to drink with no compulsion. This is an open bar with no cutoff. And it lasts for 180 days. This is not an impressive weekend. Xerxes has the wealth to keep this party going at full throttle for six months. It could be said, there ain't no party like a Xerxes party. So Xerxes party truly don't stop. The author of this book is intentionally painting the picture for the readers to be blown away by the power of this nation. But this is not only a powerful nation, this is a powerful nation with a toxic culture. In verse 10, we see a dark turn to this pompous feast. We see that King Xerxes, he has an idea. It's an idea that comes when he is merry with wine. And so Xerxes does what's the ancient equivalent of a drunk dial. He calls for his wife because he wants to show her off. He tells her to come wearing her royal crown. Some commentators think that he was asking her to come wearing only her royal crown. I'm not sure if that is true, but his purpose is clear. He is calling for his wife to come and be ogled by a bunch of drunk men. He wants to use his wife as an object to display his power. She is part of, of this pompous display. She, she's a trophy that he wants to show off. This is sexual exploitation and spousal betrayal. As I said a few weeks ago in our Untwisting the Truth series, the abuse of women has a long history. Here we see it all the way back in 480 B.C. We're not only meant to see how strong this nation is, friends, we're meant to see how corrupt its culture is. And this corruption is not limited to the king because look what happens when, when the queen refuses him. Vashti does not comply. She has too much dignity to allow herself to be turned into an object. And so she refuses the king's request. Good for her. But he flips a lid. And all his boys who are right there with him, they decide to make a bad thing worse. 
they tell him not only is this about you and her, but word's going to get out, and then every wife is going to stand up to their husbands. And so you've got to create a law here, Xerxes. You've got to make sure that it's known that men are in charge. The word that gets translated in verse 22 as master, where men are master of their home, more literally means a ruler to be worshipped. These guys try to legalize the right for men to act like gods and force their wives to comply with any of their wishes. And I don't have time to really get into this, but man, who you surround yourself with matters. This king is not protected by having true friends who tell him, hey, what you did with Vashti was wrong. Let, let's stop there. No, they take a bad thing and they encourage him to take it even further. Friends, pick your friends wisely. The king thinks this law is a good idea. And, and think, about, think about how insecure that means he is. In a time when he is showing off all that he has accomplished, he becomes worried about how one person's actions reflect on him. This seemingly powerful king is actually a pretty weak person. All it takes is one no for him to scramble into having a massive PR campaign. If you ever think that if you have just enough money, if you have enough success, if you have enough power, then you finally feel secure, well, King Xerxes has something to say to you. Here's this guy who has everything all the power, money, and fame that you could possibly have, and yet he is as weak and insecure as one no. That's all it takes to bring him down and make him panic. See, if your life is about you trying to prove yourself to be great, then you will always be vulnerable to whatever makes you feel not great. And you can spend your whole life trying to be powerful like Xerxes, only to find that when you get to the top, it leaves you feeling even more insecure. I think Madonna said it very honestly when she told Vanity Fair, now that I am somebody, I have to continually work to prove that I am somebody. I wonder here, who is trying to chase a career? Who is trying to chase more dollars? Who's trying to chase more recognition? Thinking that in having more, you'll find your peace. Friends, there is no amount of prestige on earth no amount of self-affirmation you can get that you can receive that will make you feel secure about yourself. If you are chasing security and things of this world, you will always be chasing. You need something bigger than you to make you secure. You need God. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's stay here on a powerful nation. In response to gain this no, Xerxes' sinful attempt to abuse his wife becomes a systemic issue for the entire nation as he turns spousal abuse into law. What we're meant to see here in this opening chapter, friends, is, is a powerful nation with a very toxic culture. These are dark times. And I have to think that in our culture, where one out of six women have experienced sexual assault of some kind, where the use of pornography is rampant, and 80% of it is made up of violence against women. And I know those aren't just stats, I know those are stories. I know for some of you here, it's part of your story. Esther 1 is opening in dark times, friends, dark times have not ended. We live in dark times today. But the most pressing danger here that we're seeing in Esther chapter 1 is not only the evil of this powerful nation, but what we're seeing is the existential threat it posed to God's most precious promise. 
See, back in Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that there would be a rescuer who would come, who would, who would crush evil once and for all. That there would be a seed that would come from the woman who would crush and defeat the snake, who is Satan. This rescuer would come and he, he would conquer and bring God's righteous purposes and rescue us from the brokenness of this world. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that this rescuer, this seed of the woman, would come from the people of Israel. And as you read the Old Testament, one of the major themes is the preservation of this seed. Through all the lineages, all those long names that, let's be honest, we probably skip over and don't read. What we are seeing in those names, why they're in the Bible as part of God's inspired word, is that we're seeing God being faithful again and again to preserve His people and to have them come generation after generation so that the seed continues on and one day the rescuer will come. But here in Esther, this seed is in real danger. The power of Persia has seemed to overwhelm and almost annihilate and assimilate the Jews. These Jews have become so insignificant, they aren't even mentioned in this opening chapter. They aren't part of the governors and leaders welcome to this party. They have become lost in history, written out as nobodies. And so one of the tensions that we are meant to feel in this chapter is, is, is the seed going to be lost? Would God's promise not come true? Would evil win and darkness prevail? It is the hope of the rescuer has it died out? You see, while this king makes an oppressive law and we're meant to see his actions as evil, what we're also meant to see here is that God is going to preserve his people. Because there might be a powerful nation, but a powerful nation is nothing compared to the unstoppable God. And so let's look together at the unstoppable God. This powerful king uses his power to make an edict. Everyone be told that no woman is allowed to act like Vashti. But notice in doing so, the king ensures that every person in his kingdom will know about how weak he is and how she was able to stand up against him. This is, we're meant to see an irony here. and We're actually meant to be laughing at Xerxes and how stupid this law is. Theologian Karen Jobes draw our, t- our attention to this when she says this. Ironically, by accepting Mekuman's advice, the king ends up publicizing his embarrassing plight by ordering throughout the empire what he himself cannot accomplish in his own place, that every man should be ruler over his own household. Afraid that all the women of the empire will hear about Vashti, he ends up ensuring what he fears by sending a dispatch to every province of the empire. See how stupid this is? And how stupid we can be in our sins sometimes. The, the king thinks he is showing off his power, but all he is really doing is making sure everyone knows that he is weak. But his weak actions are meant to be contrasted here with God's unstoppable plan. See, in this dark moment, in this time where God is not even mentioned and seems to be completely absent, what we actually are seeing is that this powerful king is really an unwitting servant of God. Because Xerxes' choice to unjustly throw Vashti out of the palace is what makes a way for Esther to come to the throne. And Esther coming to the throne is what God's going to use to bring about the deliverance of his people, the Jews, to preserve this promise of a future rescuer. 
The Jewish people were going to come under the crosshairs of this nation. And an edict for their annihilation is going to be issued. But when the order to kill all the Jews comes, there's going to just happen to be a Jewish queen who can talk to the king on her people's behalf. And so what we're seeing here in chapter 1 is that even before the Jews knew they had a problem coming, God was already preparing the way for them to be saved. See, there are two levels of this story and what's going on here. On the one hand, we see a powerful nation, a powerful king acting with evil intent. But on the other hand, we see God's hand moving for the good of his people. The, the king's actions are evil. And for those choices, he will be held responsible. But what we're seeing here in Esther 1 is that even evil purposes bow in submission to God's promises. God made a promise that his rescuer would come through the Jewish people. And so God would not allow them to die out. So in the free choice of Xerxes to throw a party, in his free choice to get drunk and to want to exploit his wife, in Vashti's free choice to stand up against her husband, in the king's counselor's free choice to tell him to throw her out and make this unjust law, we are seeing all these different actors who are making their own choices, and yet over all this, there's only one real sovereign who is reigning. There is the God of providence, and none of this is happening by coincidence. Each person in this story is operating in their own free will. And at the same time, each part of the story is going exactly as God has willed. They are free actors, moving, thinking, speaking, deciding things for themselves. Free actors who are living in God's theater and are part of his play to bring about his purpose to redeem and rescue people for his glory. And so we ask the question, where is God in Esther 1? We don't hear him mentioned. Where is he? He's the author. He's the one who is writing this entire story. And this is not just a story for the Jewish people to remember about their deliverance. This is a story that is foreshadowing and teaching us about our deliverance. This is a story that's about Jesus because he is the promised rescuer. He, he is the seed from the woman who will come and crush the head of Satan. He is the one who brings true deliverance through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus said that all scriptures about him and so we are not seeing the meaning of any text until we have seen him in this place. And so in chapter 1, we see a king showing off his power. That should make us think about how Jesus came as a king to empty himself of his power. In this chapter, we see Vashti unjustly judged because she held on to her dignity. In Jesus, we see him being justly judged because he laid down his dignity, took on our sin, and died in our place on the cross. In this chapter, we see a feast where sin is rampant. In Jesus, we see a feast of his salvation. But at this feast, what the Bible calls the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when all who put their faith in Jesus are home with Jesus in heaven, at his feast, Jesus is going to call forth his bride, the people he has saved. He is going to call forth his bride to his feast, not to exploit us, but to rejoice in what he has done for us. 
We're called to the feast not to be dishonored, but to be honored by Christ as he rejoices in his saving work. And we're coming to this feast not naked and ashamed. We're coming to this feast beautiful and resplendent, clothed in his righteous robes of forgiveness and grace purchased for us at the cross. Friends, where is God? God is moving all of history forward to ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ. Yes, he often does this through invisible and inscrutable means. But in every generation, in every corner of the world, God is at work at all things, in all times, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, there might be times, oh, there might be times when God seems absent in your life. But God's infinite power is not limited to your finite perspective. God can work in ways in your life beyond what you can even see. No matter what we do or don't see, God's plan is marching forward. His plan of redemption in Jesus is unstoppable. You need to know today, if you placed your faith in Christ, your ultimate deliverance, you will be at that wedding feast. Your deliverance is inevitable because God is unstoppable. To be in Christ is to be assured that you are on the winning side of history. And that God has promised victory even in the face of life's greatest threats. So when you are having those overwhelming days, or weeks, or months, or years, when things are coming at you so much that you feel like, I just want to take off my uniform, like I can't deal, I'm done, I just want to go mingle with the crowd. What we are to do with this story is to use it to fuel our faith that God is not asking us to have this uniform on and be the hero of our story. He's not asking us to have all things figured out. He's not asking us to be strong, to keep it all together, to, to always know the right thing to do. He's asking us to trust that He's the hero. That He's always working. That He is strong. That His promises are true. That His love is real. And that our future in Him is secure forever. The Bible has a phrase for living with this kind of trust. It's called waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not something passive. It's not a reference to killing time. It's not waiting like we do at the DMV. <laughs> Bored tedium, just hoping our term comes. No, waiting on the Lord means living with the peace that comes from the assurance that God will take action on our behalf. W waiting on the Lord is living with the knowledge that no matter what might be happening around me or to me, God is always working for me. And so I'm waiting. I'm just expecting. I I'm knowing that God is going to come through. I don't know how this part of my story might go, but I know that God has already written the end and my end is going to be redemptive glory in Christ. Friends, this is what we say to our fears. 
This is what we say when the voices of worry and anxiety start whispering their unsettling words in our hearts and minds. We say, no, 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 I'm not listening to you. I'm waiting on the Lord. And oh, yes, this might be hard. But I'm living with humble confidence in the God of providence who has promised that the end of my story is going to be deliverance. This is why the prophet Isaiah gives us this beautiful promise in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Friends, strength to meet the struggles of the day do not come through you being strong. And perhaps the reason that you feel so fatigued right now is because you're trying so hard to be strong. Strength does not come through us trying to be strong. Strength comes from us waiting on the Lord and trusting that He is strong. We draw our strength from His strength. And we don't limit His power to our finite perspective. And if you're here and you are not a Christian, I believe there's no such thing as coincidence. But God has you listening to this for a reason. And that reason is that God loves you. Think about all the details in your life that have gone into you listening to this sermon. Whenever it is that you're listening to it, however it is that you're listening to it. God has been working in each one of those details. Because He loves you. And He wants to rescue you. You might have thought it was your choices, and they are your choices, but behind all those choices was also God's purposes. He's trying to rescue you. He's trying to get through to you. And He's inviting you to come into His kingdom today. Stop living for the shallow things of this world that you know don't satisfy. And to bend your knee to Jesus Christ, to place your trust and faith in Him as your Savior. There, there's peace waiting for you in Jesus. Now I pray some people here now in the sound of my voice, today be the day of your salvation. Where you come to find your peace in Christ. And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I hope today is a day where you're reminded of the peace that you have in Christ. It's not peace you have to work for. It's not peace you have to struggle for. It's a peace that is yours in Jesus. And you might not always experience it. You might still at times be fearful and anxious. But in those times, God's not disappointing you. He's not wondering, why aren't you stronger? He's inviting you to come and find your strength in Him. And God has you listening to this. Because God doesn't want you just thinking that life is happening to you. He does not want you thinking that life is just a random set of events taking place in the course of history. He wants you to know that He has loved you, and He has reserved you, and through many dangers, toils, and snares, you have already come. And it was grace that has brought you here thus far, and it's going to be the same grace that will lead you home. He wants to, you to see that in the same way he is working in all these details in Esther chapter 1 to bring about the deliverance of his people, which would lead to Jesus coming and bringing about our deliverance of salvation, God's at work in your life. And so today the Lord is inviting you, Christian, to stop trying to be strong and to rest in Christ's strength for you. To believe that he is strong and to find the peace that comes from submitting your will and your way to Him. 
as we see God's boundless power, may we not resist it. May we trust it. And no matter what life comes and throws at us, no matter how dark things seem to be, no matter how absent God seems to be, Christ Church, may our response be, we're waiting on the Lord. We're not moving. We're not turning. Where else can we go? We are here waiting on the Lord. Because He will always act for the good of His people.